because two gangsters, they came in and they shot the patient twice. They shot him in the hospital? Shot him in the clinic, yeah. Do people ever come in with like really weird or interesting injuries? Yeah, we had a guy who walked in with his knife in his neck. It was through his neck? It was in the back of his neck. Oh my yeah. word. In. What's up everyone and welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. My name is Joshua Rubin and I am your host. Today, I have an awesome guest. His name is Dr. Sia and he is a medical doctor and social media influencer with 3 million followers. Let's let's just reverse things. I think yeah. you are doing great. You are doing amazing. I don't think anybody in the country doing what you are doing and Thank all you. your podcasts are very like attention grabbing and interesting. And I see you doing some documentaries which yeah. I saw a few this morning and I was very impressed. So regarding my journey, I think I started a lot earlier than you. Maybe mm -hmm. that's why I'm a little bit ahead. I started my journey in 2020 when the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. And I was, as everybody else, escaped to TikTok. I was making content with my daughter just as an escape from the stresses of the daily job. And uh, everybody was asking me, what do I do for COVID? Do I do this? Do I take that? What are the symptoms? I was like, instead of answering 20 WhatsApp messages, I can just make one mm -hmm. video and be like, guys, watch it. Yeah. And that's when my video started getting attention, mm -hmm. getting going viral. And that's how it started. Within six months, WHO approached me to tell me, well done, start collaborating. I was in British Medical Journal for my work, Huffington Post, Good Morning America. And now you're here. That's how it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so before we get into all of that stuff, I mean, I just want to know a little bit about you. Sure. Where do you come from and how did you become a doctor? Okay, so I am Persian. I was born and grew up in Kuwait, in the Middle East. I went to Moscow to study medicine. And after that, I came to South Africa to do research at UCT. And uh, after that, I'm um, doing clinical work in the past 10 years, yeah. How come you decided to become a doctor? I always, I know everybody will say like you can help people in many different ways, but I wanted to make an impact in people's quality of life. Mm. And I think the most rewarding thing in medicine is when you save someone's life. That's, you You walk differently the next day. You are a superhero when you bring someone basically from dead to be alive. Mm -hmm. That's 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 like the best feeling that you have in medicine. It's quite a, it's like something I've never really been able to understand. You know, doctors seem like these like indestructible human beings that like you guys work insane hours under extreme pressure. Um, and like you say, you literally are the barrier between life and death sometimes. What is it like when you lose a patient? How do you deal with that? I think we're not indestructible. That's why we have the, the risk of depression in doctors is twice as high as other uh, professions. And probably most of my colleagues are either seeing psychologists or being to psychiatrist uh, because we all, all, we all probably burn out badly. Mm. Um, we develop resilience with time. So when you lose a patient, it's never, it's never, it's never easy. But when you're a junior, it affects you really badly. And the more you practice, the more you experience, you become more resilient. It will, you will never get used to it because you are human at the end of the day. But you learn when there's an emergency, how to stop being emotional and just think with your brain. So if you are outside and some emergency happens, people will probably scream and run around. We as doctors would be like, you do this, you go call an ambulance, start helping with do CPR. So that's, that's what we learn with experience. Mm. It's how to cope under extreme pressure. Yes, yes. Mm. And do you remember the first, I know we're kind of jumping straight in here, but yeah. do you remember the first life that you lost? One of your patients? I remember the first one that got to me. It was a six years old girl that was in a car accident. She came to the clinic and she was in a stableish. She was sitting, talking with her mom mm. and then suddenly collapsed. It got to me because my daughter was six years old and seeing her suddenly his pulse, I mean, his heart stopped beating, stopped breathing, trying to resuscitate her. That was, I'll never forget that moment. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, the, one of the reasons that I wanted you on the podcast was because on New Year's Eve, 
I saw something that that shocked me. <laughs> it was you, you posted on New Year's Eve. You were working right at yeah. the hospital, and yeah. you work in what area do you work in? I work in a primary healthcare mm. in a township. In a township, yeah. yeah. And um, you, on New Year's Eve, you posted a, a, a story on your Instagram feed, um, and you said that. Well, you didn't say anything. You just posted a, basically the waiting room outside, yeah. and this is why the people were in the waiting room on New Year's is because stab wounds. I mean, I'll just read the list. It says blunt assault, blunt assault, stab, blunt assault, blunt assault, stab, blunt assault, uh, stab, 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 uh, blunt assault, stab, stab, stab. I mean, that's insane. What is what is New Year's like as a doctor? This is not only New Year. This is basically every month end. New Year obviously is worse because people drink alcohol, they get drunk, and they mm. argue and they stab each other. It's it's every month end where we know they get paid, they go get drunk and stab each other. It's very difficult for people this side of Cape Town to realize that just 15 minutes drive from town, mm. you have that. When you have 40 stab patients in a weekend. Mm, uh, New Year's are known to be a bloodbath. Like whenever I go to do the morning rounds or work, it's blood everywhere. Patients waiting to go to Hotiskir. There's almost everybody is stabbed or shot. It's that's why when during COVID the government banned alcohol. I know most people was like, what alcohol has to do with this whole thing? That's exactly the same reason because when you stopped when they stopped alcohol, there was no alcohol to drink, to get drunk, to stab each other, to shoot mm -hmm. each other because then ICUs were uh, open. Because when you drunk and drunk drive, hit someone, they come in, you have to intubate, you have to defend to Khotiskir. That's how their ICUs are filled on month and weekends, New Year's, mm -hmm. public holidays. So yeah, that's, uh, and that's one reason why I'm still working in a primary healthcare because you get opportunities like this to save life. Mm -hmm. I always tell people like, I, I don't see myself working in private because you don't get to see such patients or in private, if you hurt your finger, you're gonna go the next morning or same day to the private. Mm -hmm. But in rural places, people don't go same time or they don't have transport or money to go and they come after three months when they have a, a huge growth or a cancer or which is very sad, but you get to see those cases, you get to be able to make a change in someone's life. And that's the rewarding experience that I crave. You get to make a real difference yeah. and help people that really need it. Exactly. Right at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that you worked in Russia. Yeah. How did you end up, I mean, working in Russia? So I studied medicine in Russia. Mm. Uh, I was the first child of my family. So my family, my parents weren't very experienced in applying to universities and stuff. And when I finished school, I was in the top 50 in the country. So. We, applied, we finished school at June and we applied and I was kind of confident they're going to take me. Me also not knowing, well, how's the process? You need to apply like six months mm. or a year in advance. So suddenly by, I think it was July, August, uh, one of my family friends told my dad, there's a university that is recognized by WHO is one of the best in, Mo in it, it is the best university in the Soviet Union, ex-Soviet Union and Russia. And the first three years in English. And I was like, why not? Let's go. That's how I went to Moscow mm. and Moscow is very cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I studied medicine for six years and uh, I don't know if I told you about skinhead story. The skinhead story. You mentioned it when we were having coffee, but w would you mind telling it again? So Russia has more skinheads than the rest of the world. That's when I did my research back then. And what is a skinhead? Skinheads are a new Nazi group that attack people who are not white. And in Russia, I'm black. I remember people telling my, my- There's like no me, black people in Russia. There yeah. are black people. Very few though. I think anybody who is not white Russian, it's gonna be at risk of being attacked. So on Hitler's birthdays, oh sorry, on Hitler's birthday, which is 20th of April, a day before and a day after, the foreigners don't go to university because all skinheads from all over Russia, they come to Moscow to attack foreigners. Mm. And luckily I've been safe throughout my six years and I was doing a year of just practical for myself. 
And that's right when I was in the wrong time, wrong place, attacked by skinheads. I've had broken bone, broken bone, broken bone, season over my head. Thankfully. Can you, can you set the scene? Like, yeah, of course. tell me about the day you woke up, you got out of bed, you were going where? Okay. So I went out for dinner mm. and I was on my way back home and I could see because skinheads do have, the, sh the heads are shaved and they're generally in groups and I could see them coming mm. on, on my side of the road. And I thought if I turn around and run, they're probably all going to follow me. Mm. And I feel like I also had like pride, you know, like I'm brave. Maybe it was a stupid thing to think back then in that situation. So I put my head down and I went past them. But I think one of them caught, like saw me and I got punched. I tried to run towards the street. There was a, like a 20 meters of snow. Mm. And I'm a sprinter, but somehow some of them tripped me and they were only kicking my head with these boots. I didn't think of anything else except how I can move because I knew if I don't move, I'll probably be dead. So I was crawling towards the, towards the street and as soon as I reached the street, they all left me. I walked back home, called an ambulance, waited two, three hours, ambulance didn't come. My friend took me to hospital. I was there for like 12 days, but I was fully awake, alert, they put me in a neurosurgery department with people who were having neurosurgical <laughs> conditions. Like the guy next to me was speaking in numbers. The guy across me has half of his head, half of his brain was, I mean, cut off or oper mm. had operated on. So I was testing myself every night. Two plus two is four, four by four is 16. And you're trying to okay. make sure that you didn't make have sure brain I'm damage. Still, I'm still fine. Mm. So... Yeah, and then I got discharged and uh, life continued. When, when it comes to, I mean, as a doctor, right? Mm. What is it like to be a doctor and be at the mercy of another doctor in a way, you know? Because you're so used to having people's lives in your hands. How does it feel to have your life in someone else's hand? Doctors are bad patients. So <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, it's... Uh, It's a difficult question, mm. but uh, sometimes you just have to trust. Um, especially that you are a doctor, but you're also not a specialist in that field. Mm. So that's maybe one more reason to like, okay, he is the specialist. So I, I trust that person. Mm. You, you must trust your doctor and you, you shouldn't, like as doctor, we always like to treat our own illnesses. And like my daughter, whenever she was sick, would. I would treat her and then after a while, I'd be like, you know what? We need to go to hospital. You know? Go to so, a real doctor so after, after <laughs> that, that knows, that specializes. Exactly. A, a yeah. pediatrician. Yeah. So I learned from the beginning, you should let go. You mm. should let go and just go to the specialist that knows better than you mm. in, those, in those even simplest of things. Yeah. So you were in like a ward with people that had like severe um, trauma or, yeah. or illnesses. Yeah. Um, you mentioned someone was only speaking in numbers. How does something like that happen? What part of the brain gets damaged? Do you know? No. Um, at that stage, I was still, I just finished medicine, so I wasn't really aware. And since then, I haven't gone back to investigate all the cases that I saw mm. back then. Um, so yeah, so I haven't, there mm -hmm. were severe cases. I was like on a top hospital in Moscow. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able mm. to answer that question. And so you were in hospital for 12 days after this yeah. attack, right? Um, do you have any lasting effects from this attack still to this day? Not that I can notice. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you look good. You look pretty. <laughs> yeah, I probably looked better back then. <laughs> <laughs> we all looked better back yes, then. Yes, yeah. probably, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think... Uh, mm. And w was that a big reason for you to move to South Africa or to um, I get actually, moved somewhere else? You'd be surprised. So... I think I have a strong mentality. So even after that, uh, after I got discharged, I went back to work and they looked at my face and they're like, dude, you need to go home and rest another few weeks because I'm, I'm sure my eyes was bruised and mm. the stitches on my head. After that, I still tried to go back to work. Going through the same paths, it kind of like bring like some PTSD, like you watch behind your back to make sure there's nothing happening. And... You'd be surprised. I didn't tell any of my family members until I got discharged. 
because I was like, what is the point of telling them which they are living on the other side of the world and they cannot do anything about it. So mm -hmm. why stress them? I'm doing okay. So once I got discharged, after like a month, I told them, and then they really wanted me to come back. So I put myself in their shoe and I was like, any parent would have been like, you know what, this is not worth it, come back. So mm -hmm. I went back in, a, in like with the, with the decision that I'm going for a visit to visit them and I'm coming back. I didn't take anything. I went with the empty suitcase because I was determined to come back and finish my practicals, which they were like not needed already. Once I got home, I was like, uh -uh. <laughs> it's very safe, very calming. I was like, that's not worth it. I went back to Russia. I took all my stuff and went back home. Yeah. And then? And then I applied from Venezuela to Japan, everywhere. There was a website where you have all the medical schools around mm -hmm. the world. I wrote to all, all of them to come for research or to specialize or anything. University of Cape Town was one of the few that said, you can come, you can do your research, we'll pay your tuition fees, we'll pay your scholarship. And I always wanted to work somewhere that is beautiful. So I don't want to go somewhere that is best university in a desert. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to be somewhere where I can enjoy life and all enjoy quality of education. And that's why I came here. <laughs> <laughs> and has it lived up to what you thought it would be? Yeah, yeah. You Cape love it Town. in Cape Town? Cape I don't want to go into politics, but mm. Cape Town is a very beautiful place. There is crime, which is very sad. And um, there's corruption, which is also very sad. But everywhere you go, there's positive and negatives. So you just choose which where you want to live mm -hmm. with what positivities and what negatives. So... I think Cape Town has been, an, it, it is an amazing place. Mm. And whoever disputes that, I tell them, go live abroad, you're gonna come back and you're gonna appreciate <laughs> Cape Town. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I mean, what are the biggest differences that you noticed working in a hospital in Cape Town, in, in a township yeah. versus Russia? What were the biggest differences that you noticed straight away? In terms of maybe like people coming in, what, the common thread between illnesses and injuries, like I'm sure in Russia, you probably didn't see as much of the blunt force trauma and stab wounds like you see in the townships here. Definitely, yeah. Um, so using that as an example, like was there anything that you really noticed was very different between Russia and South Africa in terms of uh, medical infrastructure and working in hospital? I think most hospitals look the same. Mm. Education is kind of the same everywhere. You, I think you just said it, the amount of trauma we see in South Africa, it's, I don't think people see it in developed countries. Like in, I, I don't remember seeing a single assault in my time. Maybe I was in a different kind of clinics because mm -hmm. even Cape Town, if you go maybe to Constantia Clinic, I'm not sure if there's a clinic there or a Greenpoint, you're gonna see less trauma than you working in a township. Mm -hmm. Areas like Kailicha, Nyanga, Guguleto, those places. Even doctors are at risk. Doctors get attempted hijacked, assaulted. There is, you can just Google and there's instances where like gunmen come to the clinic to finish the job. So I was speaking to one of my colleagues who worked in Kailicha before. He said there was a night where they had a gang person was shot and they're trying to do it. So there was a gang fight. Yes, yeah. outside. So one of them came inside and they were trying to resuscitate that person. And suddenly there were noise Everybody was scared running around because two gangsters from the other, from the opposition one, they came in and they shot the patient twice. They shot him in the hospital? Shot him in the clinic, yeah. So this is not a new thing. I don't think such instances are like people on like, I don't think newspapers are aware of such issues because I feel like they're trying to suppress such news, not to make people scared. Mm. Hanover Park Clinic, was a 24 hour clinic, but they made it, um, they closed the night shift. So there's a week and, and like there's, there, at night it's closed because gangs kept coming in, robbing people, jumping on fences. So. Did you, were you ever there when a robbery took place? Cause I mean, it seems to be quite common. You were just telling me about a story okay. where one of your colleagues was uh, robbed at gunpoint this morning. Yeah, yeah, attempted hijack this morning. I was at work when I got, I got a call from one of my colleagues saying to come to this room. And I ran to the room because I could hear her voice was like shaking. And one of my colleagues 
on an attempted rape on a Friday, midday, in her office. One of the at work patients. One of the patients tried to rob, well, tried to rape one of my colleagues. So when I got to the room, her scrubs were torn, her pants was a little bit torn, she was on the floor, room was messed up. Yeah. Thankfully she was not physically harmed, mm. but I was emo- emotionally traumatized. The whole the whole clinic is traumatized. Some years before that, our porter was stabbed to death outside of the gate. Your porter? Yeah. What's a porter again? Porter like is the person who like transporter. Transport transport yeah. patients transport, around yeah. or stuff like this. So I heard that there was an argument between him and an escort. And the escort waited outside with a knife. And as soon as he stepped outside, he got stabbed. So it is not very safe. And uh, yeah, it is, I don't know. We can can talk about this for a very long time. Something that I'm actually quite interested in is because there's a lot of people that need to be seen by doctors, right? Yeah. Especially in townships and places like the Cape Flats. And a lot of your patients seem to be people that are coming in with gun wound, like gunshots and stab wounds or uh, like domestic violence abuse yeah. cases. Um, and then you get people that like maybe have cancer, like stage four cancer or something or uh, have AIDS and yeah. really need treatment, right? How do you prioritize where you spend your time? So like say the hospital's full and a gang member comes in with a gunshot wound and someone comes in um, with a severe illness, maybe like a, an aneurysm or something, mm. right? Who do you prioritize? Okay, very good question. So all hospitals, they have a triage system. Triage basically means to sort out. So all patients, well, unless you are a red, which is like an, so red is an emergency, orange is very urgent, yellow is urgent, green is non-urgent. Green is basically you have flu. You have rash and your mm. vitals are stable, you become green. So we see patients according to the triage color. Um, chest pain is orange. Somebody who's unconscious, shot, obviously his blood pressure gonna be down, his pulse gonna be up, mm. that's that's red. They go straight to the resuscitation room and that's where you start seeing that person. On weekends, like the one you saw, for example. The New Year's Eve. The or- New Year's Eve or month ends, Saturday nights, you can get few of the red ones at the same time. So there are usually two, three doctors on the shift and you and the nurses have to resuscitate one, two, three, and you have to prioritize who has the better. So if you are like only two doctors and they're like four, you have to decide who has the best chance of living and you try to that to resuscitate that, that person. Obviously you're gonna try, the nurse is gonna try with one, you try with the other mm. one. Once you stabilize this one, you go to the other one, but you have to know who has the better chance. And So it's whoever has the better chance of living. Yeah. So it doesn't matter why they came in. It's just whoever has the better chance of living. That's when you have, let's say there's a massacre happening. Mm. Like I think a few years ago, there was a Boko Haram massacre just the road across the clinic. And there was two doctors and I think three patients came I think one survived, two died. Mm-hmm. But the, so when you have more emergencies like this and you are like one or two, then you have to decide because you cannot intubate three patients. You cannot put three patients on, yeah. on oxygen. You don't have that many oxygen even. So you have to obviously do your best because it's not only you, the nurses also can help you. But when it's crisis like this, then you have to even, even when like a crisis happens, there's mm-hmm. a guidelines when a plane crashes or whatever, you go there and you're like few people, then mm. you, whoever has a better chance, that's where, that's where they help. You know, I mean, sorry, I know this is such a bit of a random topic, but even like in, in America, right, where they have such a big problem with mass shootings and stuff, um, the ethics behind all of it is so interesting because if you think about it, like say like a mass shooter, right, mm. comes into the hospital yeah. after shooting up, say, a school um, and the mass shooter was injured or wounded by the police, like the ethics behind, do you treat him? Do you, you know what I mean? Like as a doctor, have you ever faced a situation like that where you're like, I do not want to treat this person? Or like, I, you know what I mean? It's a no, bit no, of a I weird mean, way to I say it. Exactly. Yeah. I, don't have, I don't want to say it in a bad way, but you know what I mean? No, no, yeah. no. Police brings patients. So, so in, in rural areas, because people don't trust the police mm-hmm. and, ju- and the judgment, the uh, judging system, whatever you call it. 
they do community assault. So if they catch you, township justice, some, yeah, yeah. If you rape someone or stole something, the community beats you up. They don't kill the person, but they make sure bones are broken. He's like on the on the verge of death, and then suddenly police bring this patient, and it's. I'm not sure if they're supposed to tell us, but like this person was raping a 12 years old girl, for example. Now you have to treat that patient. It's very difficult, but you took an oath and yeah, mm-hmm. you, we, we, we do treat. Because in rural places, most of these people were shot. I'm not saying all of them or stabbed. They come in with their 26, 27, 28. Mm. Gun tattoos, so we. I mean, you them. see the affiliation yeah, straight course, away. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a, a gang member on here. The last podcast I did, or one of the recent mm. ones I did, and he was telling me about a shootout that he had with police, where he was shot five times. Oh yeah, so I mean, but he's also shot. He also shot people in that same incident, and it is. It's like you don't really think like someone has to treat this guy, you know, this a killer. Really, you have to. You have to treat, and it's it's an interesting decision because I don't think there's many other lines of work where you would have to face a decision like, do I save a murderer? Do I not? You know? I know. Like yesterday, we were supposed to talk, and I told you I got stuck in an emergency. Mm. Was a member of 26 gang that was shot in the abdomen. So as a senior doctor on the clinic, I was on my way, like I was leaving, and then suddenly it came in. So I obviously rushed back, tried to help the trauma, resuscitate a little bit, do the things, stabilize, and then... I left. So I think we do this because we have passion of saving lives mm-hmm. and we we separate ourselves from being emotional. That's probably, I don't want to say makes it easier, but I, I guess makes it easier because mm-hmm. emotionally we're not attached. We don't put ourselves in what he was trying to do. Or You have if, to separate it. You have to separate mm-hmm. because if I think what he was doing before he got assaulted, then it's going to be very difficult for me to do my best and help him. Mm. So I've learned over the year to just separate my emotions completely and just focus on what I'm supposed to do. As I said, like junior doctors, mm. it's very difficult for them to do similar things. And I always tell them, you do your best, whatever happens, happens. Because sometimes you bring someone to life, re- resuscitate, give all the bloodiness we have, do your best, but we don't have equipments. An ambulance sometimes mm. takes like six hours, 10 hours, Sometimes half an hour, but it can like I have had cases where I was very proud of our team. This person was basically dead, brought him back to life. He was speaking, but ambulance took I think so many hours that we used all our bloods. He was bleeding internally at the clinic level. We cannot do any kind of operation. We don't have anesthesia, so mm. person passed away. And uh, you need to learn to not beat yourself up because you did your best with, with, with whatever you had. And that's what I try to teach the junior doctors that you did your part, did your best. There was nothing else you could do. So because they go home, they beat themselves up, they mm-hmm. cry, they suffer, they go, they become depressed. And, and to do medicine, you need to learn. You cannot go on having emotion to your patients. Mm-hmm. What happens when you make a mistake? How does that affect you? And because, like, I, I a friend of mine, right? And mm. I, maybe I'll change some details because it's a, of course, yeah, of it's, course. It's, a, it's a it's a sad story, but basically, a friend of mine's dad was given the wrong medicine and um, a way too high a dosage, right, for a mental illness, mm. and ended up committing suicide, right? Um, how does that like affect the way you work? Because obviously you want to do the best job you can do, but at the same time, you're still a human that makes mistakes. I think I don't know any doctor who hasn't done a mistake. Not necessarily mistake that killed the person's life, but I think in Western Cape, we are more um, privileged to have access to specialists, if you do something wrong, you can always call like Hudiskir Hospital, mm. Tigerberg, and speak to a specialist who can give you advice on- Get a second opinion. Second opinion. Mm. I have colleagues who worked in middle of nowhere in Eastern Cape, for example, where there is, even to transfer the patient, that's like another six hours of like, a yeah. few hours of drive <laughs> yeah. or ambulance. So making mistakes is part of the whole learning thing. Mm. And 
my job as a senior doctor is always to counsel, educate, and obviously if some if there's negligence, like you didn't mistakes happen, but if you did mistake because you were negligent, you didn't check this, you didn't do that, then they're gonna be reprimanded. Pretty harsh, you, yeah. Disciplinary processes and stuff. Mm. And I mean, you, you were mentioning as well, like this. Obviously, it's a very stressful job, um, and I think it's the highest percentage of drug abuse. Like doctors have one of the highest percentages of drug abuse than any other job because they have such easy access to it and it's such a stre- stressful job that they turn. Is that correct or no? I'm not sure about drug abuse. I know I know what you're saying because especially if you do anesthesia, there's like all the drugs in front mm. of you. So it's, it shouldn't be difficult to, I mean, there are processes, but I haven't heard of that. I know we are one of the highest in depression. Mm. Suicide is more than other careers, for mm. example. So it is very stressful. Yeah, it is. I, I saw I saw a meme where basically said, I'm, I don't know if I can use that word. I basically, I screw my life to save yours, mm. which is true because when you do night shifts, you increase risk of your chronic illnesses, mental health. Oh no, I can't imagine. Uh, increase risk of um, depression, death. Basically, everything goes up. So you doing thirty hours shifts, twenty four. I have done twenty four hour shifts. What at my twenty third hour, I had to do a cesarean section. You had to do a what? Cesarean section. Oh my! But that's before I worked in. A, we don't we don't do that in clinic. I worked in a hospital before. So. That's how it is. And I'm sure it's the same in other countries. Mm. So it is, uh, you basically sacrifice sacrificing yourself your, in a way. Yeah. to save others. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Because I mean, you work, working night shifts, it's like your whole clock gets thrown off, man. It's not like a, it's very bad for you. As someone who stays up late nights, you know, I don't feel good the next day a lot of the time. And to, to like imagine having a scalpel in my hand while feeling like that, I would not know what to do with it. But um, I mean, what is the, do, do people ever come in with like really weird or interesting injuries? Yeah, we had a guy who walked in with his knife in his neck. Half, I, I don't know if I still have the picture. I'm sure I have a picture somewhere. There's a kitchen knife, half of his knife was at the back of his head and he was walking, he walked to the clinic and he wanted us to take it out. And I was like, no, but he's taking that, nobody touching that knife. It was through his neck. It was in the back of his neck. Oh my yeah. word. And so he was stable. I assume that neck wasn't touching a nerve or mm. a blood vessels. We spoke to Khotiski Hospital because we're not gonna touch it. It must be in an operating theater. He was taken that side and he was sorted. Another incident, one of my night shifts when I was working, a guy came and said I was shot in the mouth. I was like, dude, you can just sit down. I'll come to you because you can still walk around and come. Mm. talk to me and stuff. I finished with my patient. I went back to him. I was like, open your mouth. His tongue was a little bit swollen. So I took the tongue depressor and I put my light and I looked at his t- throat and there was a hole in the back of his throat. So I was like, okay, maybe it's like a uh, rubber bullet or something like this. I sent him for an x-ray. He came back for the, from the x-ray. There was a bullet like millimeter from his vertebra, from his C, from his C spine. I guess we only see the miracles because the other ones don't make it to come to the hospital. Mm. So I've seen few similar cases where the bullet is like millimeters away. Yeah. So and, I was. And d- does anyone ever come in with like weird stuff? Like, you know, you like. <laughs> Tell me what is weird. I've seen it all. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, did you ever watch Jackass? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the guys, they, one of the guys, I think it was, I forgot his name, but uh, he put a toy car up his ass. It might have been Steve O. My weirdest case was something was stuck up the vagina and wasn't coming out. And probably that's the weirdest. What was it? Was a uh, uh, spray cap. A spray cap? Yeah. I think the person was using the whole spray. As, the bottle and the cap popped off. And then uh, the whole spray as a way to masturbate. I'm sure if I, I don't know if I can say that word in yeah, the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I think the cap st- st- got stuck inside. Yeah. Jeez. But that's, this is not a weird thing. I mean, I've seen that's that bad, brains yeah. out and yeah, I've seen it all. You've seen it, yeah, all, yeah. seen it all, yeah. One of the things that I was talking to you about last night was uh, about this the surgeon, right? And um, I think medical advances have changed the world. Yeah. And 
the way that we live our lives. You know, we're living longer now. Um, you go for a surgery, you just go to sleep, you know, you wake up like nothing's ever happened. It was, ne was never like this. I mean, it wasn't always like this. Mm. <laughs> but one of the things that really blew my mind was this, this video that I sent you. And um, I've just got some information here. It was about a, a surgeon called Robert Liston, yeah. right? And Robert Liston studied medicine at the University of uh, Edinburgh in 1808 at the age of just 14 years old, right? And this, this guy was like known to be the, they, they called him the fastest knife in the West because he was extremely fast at doing surgeries, right? So Robert Liston was a Scottish surgeon. Uh, Liston, Liston was noted for his speed and his skill in an era prior to anesthetics when speed made a difference in terms of pain and survival, you know, because before anesthetics, like if you had to do an amputation, if you take someone's leg off, right? They're going to feel every moment of it. It has to be fast. They're awake. And if, it, if you take too long, they're going to either bleed out or they'll die of shock. So this mm. guy, Robert Liston, basically was known for these extremely fast surgeries mm. where he would do these amputations. And these days we know all about sanitation and um, we know all about like hygiene and we have all the new medical advances, right? But back in the day, they didn't know about any of this stuff. So what he would do is he would have like a crowd of people uh, oh, watching yeah. him do these surgeries, right? Because I think it was more of a, like, it was like a spectator sport back in the day. It was like, will they live? Will they die? Like, <laughs> what's going to happen, you know? Gladiator. So the, the spectators, I'm sure, were ma mainly mm. medical students and stuff, watching yeah. and observing to learn. But basically the way these operations would happen is these people would come, be put onto the operating table, and then Robert Liston would amputate, right? And... Back in the day, because they didn't know much about hygiene and sanitation, like one of the things that the doctors had was aprons full of blood because it was a sign that the doctor was a good surgeon if his apron was full of blood because that means many people were using him. So they would have these aprons and the blood would be like congealed and dried and crusty. And like he would be operating on someone with like an open wound with all of these germs on him with like people screaming in the background. And like one of the things he was the most famous for was uh, Robert Liston became the only surgeon in known history to have a 300% mortality rate from a single operation. <laughs> I saw so, that. Yeah. yeah, he was doing a surgery and uh, an amputation. And basically what happened was um, Liston was so focused on the speed of his cuts that he took his, assist, his assistant's fingers off with one clean cut. And then when he swung the blade again, he hit someone else um, and the person on the operating table died. So he literally killed three people in one operation, operation. which sounds like unheard of. You can look this up. Fact checkers, do your work. <laughs> I, I mean, that's so wild. It's crazy. Hey? I, was, I was watching it last night and my wife and daughter in the background, they're like, what are you watching? I'm like, oh, this is like from a few hundred years ago, but medicine is in an infancy. Antibiotics were discovered like what? 60 years ago? I have no 60, idea. 60, I think- Not long 70, ago, I'm Exactly, sure, yeah. not long ago. So we are at our infancy and we have come a long way, but we still very at like at the beginning of You medicine. think so really? Yeah, of course. Of course, we, st we still have- a lot to go with. I'm, I'm sure at some point in the future, most of the illnesses will be treated with like natural treatments. Mm -hmm. But at this stage, we don't have enough knowledge to know if this herb works or not. I know people use it and I always tell the patients, don't use your herbal medication because they can interfere with your, like let's say HIV medication, for example, like uh, because there's not enough studies. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure at some point in the future, they will be used, but at this stage, best is to listen to your doctor's advice. In Township, there are many patients who go to St. Gomez, they pay a big amount of monies. I've seen a few of them on Instagram where they charge tens of thousands. The St. Gomez? Yes. Can you explain what a St. Gomez is? I'm not the best. I, I think it's, it's like, like a, a, a traditional, it's a traditional spiritual healer, I yes, think. Yes, um, traditional spiritual in, healer. In Africa. Yes. And the patient usually... Um, or in South Africa. In South Africa. And, and there have lots of patients that generally start there. And like we have patients who have like epilepsy and they're having seizures for like years and they come to us and I'm like, but why are you coming now after many years? Mm. Because you can have like side effects, chronic, like a long-term side effects from like not treating it. 
And they were like, no, we're treating it by the Sangoma and the Sangoma, um, it, it didn't work. So now we're coming here. And is it mainly people in the townships that go to Sangomas? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I would right? say so. Yeah. Um, because I've been looking into Sangomas. It's it's very interesting, uh, traditional healing and, and that kind of thing. Do you do you think it has any like basis or merit? Like, do you think it works think at all? So. I don't, you don't think, think so. so. I'm sure there's like parts of it that work because I think medicine, like medicine as it is today, was based on traditional healing, right? Surely, because before yeah, we knew anything yeah, about yeah, it, like that's how it started. Was I'm sure we all grew up. We with smacked the, these rocks together over a cut, and then like the the dust. <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, or when you grow up, I'm sure my mom would be like, T- "Eat this, this herb or this flower will helps you yeah. with tummy and stuff." I'm sure it's like chamomile. We've all down. had it in a different way. We've all you know? had it, yeah. But to treat like diabetes or cancer, mm. or we have a traditional healer who comes to the clinic for his own treatment. So I'm like, I've never had a conversation with him because his English is very weak and I always Mm -hmm. have a nurse to translate, but I would love to sit with him one day and I'm like, how do you do this? I've I've wanted to have a traditional healer on for a while. You want to have? I really want to have one. I'll speak to him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, someone that speaks English because I'm I'm, I'm so useless with other languages. Um, Uh, Traditional healers. There are other people. When I go to work, I see on the wall all these posters that you can call to... People can increase your penis oh, yes, size. Yes, we were talking about this earlier. Yes. So this is something that I've seen for years <laughs> yes. is the fact that like, and I'm sure so I'm sure a lot of people have seen this as well, especially around South Africa. I'm sure it's all over the world. It's all over the world. But um, there's these signs that say like, you can get like a penis enlarger, uh, enlargement or find last lover or what, what are the other ones? I don't know what the abortion. other ones are. Like, yeah, like uh, abortions. And it's like these people... I've never met any of them, right? But there's signs all over Cape Town and I've seen them in other parts of South Africa as well. And it's basically just got those things like you can get an abortion, you can get a penis enlargement, you can get a, a find your last lover or dead lover. Um, and basically you call the number and they help you out apparently, right? So you've had an experience with, with these people, haven't you? So yeah, so always I'm, I always drive and I see it stuck, this poster on the wall. So mm. one day I took a picture, went to work, me and one of my colleagues, we give them a call. To see, because as a doctor, and especially when I do sexual health on my social media, I know there is no way to increase the size of your penis. There is no oil, no cream. Nothing. The only way is a surgery where they cut one ligament, but mm. it has side effects. You rather, you have only one penis, so rather like not play around. So I know these things. And I give them a call and I ask, how can you... I want to increase size of my penis, you know, like, and he's like, yeah, what size do you want? I'm like, this size, like, yeah, we can do it this much cost. I'm like, if I want it bigger, then he's like, this much, you pay, pay more. I was like, okay. And then how can I find my lost lover? He's like, depends on how much you pay and how many days we'll find it for you. And I'm like, I am sure there are people who are desperate, who falls for these things, mm-hmm. especially penis size. Because I remember of, looking at it when I was younger. <laughs> I was like 10 years old and I used to see these and I was like, I was like, maybe it'll work. <laughs> maybe. Because I, th- I feel like all men, mm. you watch porn and yeah. then you think that is how it's supposed to be. That is what a woman would want. That's what's going to give best sex. And you look at yours and it's like 13, 14, 12, 15 centimeters, which are all normal. normal. Yeah. They're all normal. So... And then if I tell you there's a cream that can make you look like that, you would pay for it. Like, mm. uh, but it's, it's all it's all scams. It's all scams. And uh, defining lost lovers, did you talk about that? Yeah, I talked about it. I think. What did they said, say? How did they find them? Oh, no, I, I don't think I went that deep in oh, the chat. Know. Yeah, because they, they could hear my voice that uh, I'm not very serious about finding my lost lovers. Yeah. But I think the more I paid, the faster do I found mm. my lover. Cool. So, I mean, just moving on. The reason I found you, obviously, is because you have a very big presence on social media, right? Mm. Um, you told me briefly, like, why you wanted to start social media. But just tell me again, like, what was the, what is the journey? What is the goal? And, uh, yeah, what is the reason that you started posting on social media? So initially it was as an escape. But then once I started educating people, mm. it was more to raise awareness and educate and do my part of helping people being more educated mm-hmm. and empowered. And I started by raising awareness on HIV, COVID-19. Um, then I, I started breasting math, sorry, 
Busting starting, mess. Busting mess. <laughs> Breasting <Yes>. mess. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Busting mess. And then it was a medical mess. And that was my mm. famous videos. And then one of the mess I thought I busted was period mess. Period, yeah. And I was, one of them was about, I added some sexual health in them. And that video got 30 million views. And I realized from the comments that people are not educated on their sexual health. And that is when I decided I'm taking the responsibility of doing sex education mm -hmm. and empowering people with their sexual and reproductive health. Because I feel, not only I feel, it is, it is actually sex education is a human right. You guys can Google it. Mm -hmm. And sex education is proven to make you take better sexual health decisions and maybe even do sex at a later stage. In South Africa, we have, I saw an article like last week, South Africa has 90,000 teenage pregnancies every year. There are different reasons, but I feel like one of the main reasons is just lack of sex education. Mm -hmm. People until today, they think the pull out method basically means you're having sex and you ejaculate outside of the vagina, yeah. there is zero chance of pregnancy. Because there's still pre-coming. There's pre-cum and the pre-cum has sperms. Yeah. I think efficacy of pull-out method is like 70 something percent. So there's like 20% It's chance. literally only 70%. Yes, 78. So there's a 30% chance that you're gonna get yes. pregnant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so people don't know this, especially like teenagers. Yeah. The other thing is that I always drives me crazy mm -hmm. is that the, uh, the morning after pills. Morning after pills work, but not if you have already ovulated because they work by preventing or delaying ovulation. So already, if you already ovulated and you had sex, unprotected sex, and then you take the morning after pill, it's not gonna work. Mm. Plus, if you're overweight above certain BMI, the efficacy gonna be less. If it's taken after a certain amount of days or hours, efficacy gonna be less. And I don't think schools are teaching us these things. Mm. I think, you know, it's funny, because like, I think some schools do, but I, I think it's maybe like I went to a pretty good school, right? Okay. And like they obviously taught us there. Okay. Like no one really cares though. It's so funny because it's it's a shame because it really is helpful information. But when you're like, it's so hard to teach like a group of grade sevens and eights like about sex stuff, you know? It's true. So, I mean, I the girls were listening. The guys were just doing whatever. But um. I think now, especially with what you're doing, you're just making it. I mean, it's, you can find it online as well. Of course. But the way you do it, you put it into these short videos, bite sizes, very easy to watch, and that they reach so many people. And um, it's very hard once you know something to to ignore it, right? It is. So it's mm. like if I didn't know that the pullout method was uh, not that effective, right? I might keep doing the pullout method. But now that I know that it's not very effective, you know, I'll definitely use a condom. Yeah. And I'm just using that as an example. I use example, con yeah. condoms always. Yeah. But um, I mean, so one of the big things you do is like medical misinformation and, and sexual facts, right? Yeah. Um, so I've got a few here. Just to okay. end off, I wanted to, to ask you a few, right? So the first one is I can get HIV from being around people who are HIV positive. That is obviously untrue. HIV has a huge stigma in our country. Mm. Um, we have patients who- One in five people have HIV in South Africa, apparently. Wow. I know we are one of the top three countries in the world. Mm. And HIV, the stigma is so high that some people, they leave the clinics around them and they walk so far to come to ours because they don't want to be seen. Mm. Uh, but I'm making, I'm going to make a statement, but I'm sure many other health workers will agree. HIV, it is far more easier to manage than diabetes, hypertension, asthma, any other condition, because mm -hmm. all the other conditions you have to do diet, you have to exercise, you have to take tablets, take injections, morning, night. With HIV, it's only one tablet mm -hmm. that you can take for the rest of your life, you're gonna be fine. Um, that's amazing. It, that's um, that, like the advancement that we came, I mean, like from HIV means death sentence. It was now, a death sentence, yeah. Now HIV, if you are HIV positive and on treatment, you have the same life expectancy as normal people. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So yeah, HIV is a, that's gonna be transmitted mm -hmm. through kissing, 
through touching, through sharing utensils, through hugging. Is it mainly just sex? Uh, like unprotected blood, sex, right? Blood to blood. So like semen would do it and va- yeah. uh, like vaginal fluids yes. would do it. Yes. Um, and like obviously blood to blood, right? Yes. And then what we have, so if you have sex with someone and the condom breaks and you don't know if the other person is positive, mm. you can come to the hospital or clinic and we're going to give you PEP, which is- Instantly, post- hey? It's like it's like the morning after pill kind of thing for yes. AIDS yeah, or for but, HIV. But you take it for a month. It's called post-exposure prophylaxis. So within 72 hours, the, fa- the area will come the better and you take that for a month and it's gonna stop uh, this your risk. There's also medication that can prevent it now, yes. right? Prep. So it's like if your husband or wife has it, it's, the, it's the same medication. So you just take that all the time or? It's a, it's a very similar, mm. but just different tablet. It's called PrEP, pre-exposure. And the other one is PEP, mm. post-exposure. So pre-exposure, if you are in a relationship with somebody who's HIV positive, and you want to be extra safe because once you're HIV positive and you're taking your treatment and your viral load is undetectable, there is zero chance mm. of giving it to other person. But you just want to be extra safe. You can yeah. take the, the PrEP tablets. Uh, there is certain amount of time that you need to take it for it to be fully effective. Mm. So if you are going to be receiving, like if you are going to be recept- the one receiving mm. or giving it, I think there's like a certain amount of time that you need to take it before you are 100% mm. or before you're safe to do before so. Before you're safe yeah. to do it. So, yeah. Um, it's, it's funny because you, you mentioned like there's obviously a big stigma, right, with it. Um, I've actually heard, because I know there's obviously a stigma with a lot of people, but I, there was someone that I've spoken to that's in my life that I know very well and is a lady, right, That's that has kids. And they said to me um, that... Like I said, you must be very careful, right? Because a lot of people sleep around. And like, I know people in my life that have died from from AIDS. And I said, just be super careful. You know what I mean? Um, because the culture, it's, it's, it's like a different thing where a lot of the time, like wives um, stay at home and like the guys, especially in South Africa, like go, go and sleep around. True. Um, and it's not obviously always like that, but mm. I just basically said to her, I just said, be careful. You don't want to obviously get it. Um, and she said to me that it's just a disease. She said she doesn't really, she said, if I get it, I get it. It doesn't matter. I know it's, so I'm, I'm in no way mm. promoting unprotected sex because I cannot take my multivitamin. Well, I'm, I'm not... I'm not for multivitamins, different chat, but mm. like, let's say if I want to take <clears throat> omegas, omega-3s, it is very difficult to take it every day. You forget days, you get tired. So, and that's the reason why many HIV positive patients, they go to a level to become AIDS. AIDS is like the advanced HIV. Yeah. It's because- They don't they, take their medicine. They don't take their medication. Mm. And it's, and I, and I have proper chat with them. And I'm telling like, listen, this is- the last row because you like serious. you are now like your CD4 count is very low. One more mess up, you're gonna risk your life. Mm. And they are just tired. Tired of taking. It's it's just like you think it's just to take it every mm. day and I'll be fine. But to commit to it is also very difficult. Very so, difficult, yeah. So yeah. And then um the second one is this is like such a kid's one, but like masturbation makes you blind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did the masturbation myth video. I think when I was younger, it's like the teachers and parents would always go, you know, if you masturbate, you're going to go blind. <laughs> I think my masturbation videos also went viral, like 20 plus. Videos million. of you masturbating. Sorry? V- videos of you masturbating went viral. <laughs> <laughs> Those ones not going to go viral, but me debunking the myths. On, I didn't know uh, you masturb- could post that on TikTok. <laughs> on debunking? No, on me masturbation. Yeah, I'm sure there are other platforms you can do. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, masturbation makes so you So masturbation, blind. there is so much like misinformation about it from decreasing mm. your sperm number, reducing your testosterone. There's a no fab movement, like no- No so fab I, movement. Yes, yeah, so I think the only benefit of not masturbating is the discipline that you're going to develop. That's the only, mm. th- there is no health benefits from not masturbating mm. or if you masturbate, I mean, there was this, Small study, let's not go into it. The small studies, people who masturbated or reached orgasm 21 days in a month, they reduced their risk of prostate cancer. It's a very small study, mm-hmm. but some benefit, there must be bigger ones. So there are benefits to it, but 
No, no, not gonna make you blind. No okay. hairy palms. Not gonna make you bald. <laughs> not gonna make you bald. Not gonna shrink your penis. Yeah, it's all myths. Okay, and then the next one is all woman orgasm. <sighs> it is very sad because I've seen many stats that only third of the women orgasm via sex, via via, via penetration, mm-hmm. and uh, others need clitoral stimulation. Um, and I. So there's a condition called anorgasmia where you cannot orgasm. And I always encourage such people because they come into my comments and like, you need to see a sexologist or people who are specialized mm. or a psychologist because there could be a mental issue, could be trauma from the past, or it could be you doing something wrong. So the treatment for anorgasmia is to know your body, to masturbate. So that's how you know what turns you on, mm. what not, yeah. And just because, like, I want to help guys out here, right? Obviously, this this, this show has a lot of guys watching, right? Yeah. Like 70, 80% is guys. Great. I, have, I have some tips for guys. Right. Yeah. So um, I want you to tell me, because we've been talking about, like, orgasming and stuff, right? And you say only 30% of women orgasm. Mm. Um, can you explain where the, the clitoris is? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> clitoris is the one easy to find. The G spot is the one guys cannot find. So clitoris... Um, the G, which is more important, the G spot or the clitoris to making orgasm? Very important. So you have to stimulate both. So clitoris is the easier one to find, okay. easier one to. Um, That's on the outside. Eh? Is it on the outside mm-hmm. and is on top of? So most people think the vagina is the outside, the outside part. So the outside part is called vulva. Vagina is the canal. Okay. So if you look at the vulva, there is a, the, the vaginal mm-hmm. entrance, and above it is the urethra, where the pee comes from, and above that over below the hood yeah. is the clitor- uh, clitoris. Okay. And um, tips to last longer in bed? Can I just, uh, so there are, so I think, I feel like sex is also something that you need to learn, mm-hmm. practice. I mean, practice alone without knowing what you're doing is not gonna really help much. There are YouTube videos that can teach you how to use your fingers, what mm-hmm. kind of sex to do, how to last longer. Um, I had a podcast with a sex professor and she told me this educational porn where I've seen it. I've seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was helping a friend. I was helping a friend. People have sex and then they stop and they explain things to you. Mm. I'm not going to lie. I've learned there's some guru guy on YouTube where it tells you tips. I mean, I didn't follow all his things, but like, yeah, yeah. Exactly when you do where, where do, to find the G spot, mm. how to basically I, if you if you want to know this information out there, there's information like, out yeah. there, and you need to spend time and energy on those things because mm. if you people they kill themselves about this penis size and they go pills, oil, whatever. Mm. Instead of you spending that much energy on this thing, spend it on learning how to do oral, how to use your fingers. How That's to exactly everything. it. Like there is other ways. I get all this whatever you mentioned mm. now. I get them on my DMs and that was gives me even more motivation to share this to information, empower yeah. the people. You won't believe, I get questions like, I kissed a boy, my period is delayed. Am I pregnant? <laughs> I, I'm obviously, I'm, I don't laugh. I'm like, so yeah. how old are obviously, you? Yeah, how yeah. old are you? They're like, I'm 13, 14, mm-hmm. 15, 16 years old. And it's not one person, there's multiple times I've gotten this question. My partner were dry humping, my period is delayed. Am I pregnant? He used his fingers, period is delayed. Am I pregnant? So it gives me more motivation and mm. it's rewarding that I can empower these people because once you're empowered about your sexual health, you'll be more confident, not only in bed, in your relationship. And uh, yeah. the relationship, I feel like it's like two wings. One wing is physical, one wing is like, mm. I don't know, emotional or spiritual, you want to call it. And physical is also important. So to learn, to be empowered, to do better, it's going to help your relationship mm. also. I would say the, the biggest thing that I learned, right? Because honestly, like if I tell you I was such an awkward kid when it came to like sexual encounters and stuff. Mm. And I think not more than normal. Yeah. But I just had like, you know, I was scared when I was younger. But I think that the biggest thing that really helped me get over the fears was open communication with the girl or the, the, the partner that I was with. Um, because I had all these fears inside of me. And a lot of the time they have fears as well. Often if you just say it to the girl or the person that you're your partner, they'll understand completely and you'll find that the problem goes away 
because you've opened up about it. That's how do you call it in English? Hit the nail on the whatever it's called. Hit the nail on the head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because I tell people, communicate, communicate. Even this faking orgasm story, it is basically you lying to your partner mm -hmm. that you are doing great, um, having an orgasm instead of telling him what can turn you on, what can help you reach orgasm, communication. So as you said, communication, once you communicate, mm -hmm. I'm sure they also have the fears, they're also gonna communicate because everybody is, have some insecurities in a way. And you may think my partner gonna be turned off about, let's say a scar I have here, or, or the, me for being example, a virgin or, a or whatever, or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When the other partner doesn't even care or see this thing. So communication, mm -hmm. it is, Probably the main key, thing, yeah. the, 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 the mm -hmm. one of the like the main things yeah. in the in the relationship, yeah. Well, doctor, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, before we sign out, will you just tell the people where they can find you on social media and yeah, just yeah, so where I, they can see your stuff. Doctor Sia dot doctor dot Sia on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. That's where they're gonna find me. Doctor dot Sia. Yes. Cool. Thank you so much for giving me your time and coming through today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it was a pleasure. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast and I'll see you all very soon. Cheers. <laughs>